write down everything that you do in a day, literally everything, whether it's answer the phone, go to the bank, whatever, write it all down and give it a value for how much does that bring to the business? Or there's two ways you can do it. How much money does it bring to the business or how much would it cost you to hire somebody else to do it? So you look at like rudimentary things like running to the bank or whatever, a VA or somebody could do that. So like, why would I be doing that as the owner of the company? doesn't make a lot of sense. Then you get more intermediate tasks that might require some creativity or decision-making. That's more of like customer service level or something like that. And then you move into the management level, like something that might impact the business or have something to do with that. So we started assigning everything from like $10, $100, $1,000. up. When I started realizing how much of my day was spent on these stupid tasks that like weren't bringing any money, I was like, holy crap, this is ridiculous. Welcome to Pivot Me where we give business tips and mental hacks so you can move past your biggest obstacles and live the life you've earned. And now your host, business advisor and performance expert, April Garcia. For years, I made large companies larger and rich people richer. Now I coach driven entrepreneurs to hack success, create more time and get better results through high performance habits, the multiply me method, and a little mental gymnastics. On Pivot Me, I talk to thought leaders and experts sharing our successes, our many scrubs, and how we can all use both to move us to the next level. Join us and learn real simple steps to pivot you and your business towards the life you've earned. First business falls flat on its face. His second business, he scales to 40 million and then exits. He goes on to scale numerous other businesses in many industries. Who am I sitting down with today? Well, you and I are having a chat with Gary Nealon, an e-commerce expert and serial entrepreneur dedicated to helping others scale their e-commerce business and maximize profits. Gary took a digital marketing approach to a cabinet business, created an audience of raving fans for their kitchen content and has since done it for several other companies. Because if you can sell super heavy, not sexy kitchen features, then you can sell just about anything. He's real, he's honest, and he shares today a simple system, just a few questions he developed to help vet business ideas, product ideas that work for your staff, your vendors, and most importantly, us business owners. We love a good idea, but how do we keep from chasing them all? We love that shiny new object thing, right? As the Russian proverb says, if you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. Gary's about to tell us how to handle this problem. Let's get right into it. Gary, I'm so excited to have you today with Pivot Me. I'm pumped about the value that you're going to bring to the audience. You've got so much business experience, so much success. I want to kick this off by just understanding when I look at your track record, there's a lot of things you've just knocked it out of the park. Gary, has it always been this way? No, shockingly. No, my first business actually failed miserably. God, I, was up, I think I was 29. I had no idea what I was doing. I was working for a logistics company that basically helped companies get into Walmart. So if a new vendor came in, we showed them how horrible it was going to be the whole process getting into Walmart. And I was like, man, why am I, I can do this for myself. Why can't, you know, I don't know anything about business. Like I've never run a business or anything else like that. So I found some funny, some people to give me some money, put together a business plan and up buying a business. And that was in like 2007, I think. So right before the economy just crashed. Great time. Yeah. Perfect timing. I don't even think we lasted a year before I was just running out of cash. So came to the painful conclusion that I was going to have to just shut it down and uh, 
you know, lick my wounds. So ended up filing bankruptcy on that. Started over from scratch, basically. So started with, I think I had maybe $4,000 in the bank. Went out, went back into sales, which is what I was in before. And then just was determined to never have to work for somebody again. So literally was spending like all my evenings just creating content, writing new business for, or writing new articles and everything for the business that I, the cabinet business that I ended up starting. So. Yeah. So one thing I have to ask you about Gary is thank you for, for being honest and telling us your backstory. So you went and borrowed money, the business failed. So somebody's lost money. How do you wrap your head around that? How do you have the courage to go and do this again after such a huge stumble? I mean, that was actually the interesting thing. Like, the only reason I started the other business, I mean, I, I knew I didn't want to work for anybody, but my whole goal was just to pay back to people that I borrowed money from. So it wasn't like when I first set out, I was like, okay, I need X number of dollars. I just have to make that each month, you know, X dollars per month, and then I could pay them off, then I'm good. And then I just realized, I was like, holy crap, this is actually a legit business. Like, I can, now that I know what I'm doing, I, I can actually scale this. So, Slowly but surely, we scaled it. Ended up giving, you know, paying those people back, and then the business over the course of twelve years just turned into a monster. Wow! How did you know when you had that legit business? So you've gone from this other one now to this one. How did you know? Oh, wait, I really have something that could that could scale. It was actually a vendor that kind of forced me. So he was one of the people that invested in the first company. So I was like, okay, I, I, he had a successful business. I was like, let me just sell your kitchen cabinets online. And he was like, I don't think they're going to sell, but if you guys want to do it you know, I'll supply you and everything else. So at one point we started doing too much volume and he was like, listen, I can't keep doing this from my warehouse. You need to get your own. So I was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I'm no longer running this out of my kitchen. I need to now actually turn it into a legitimate business and start doing some of that stuff. So I'd say that was probably one of the tipping points was just when the vendor came back was like, I don't know what you're doing, but you're selling more than we thought you would. So we need you to actually you know, get your own warehouse and do that kind of stuff. That's a huge leap though. Knowing that you didn't at the time have a lot of business experience to go to dealing with warehousing and, and cabinets, you sold cabinets online. Like, I mean, it's, it's, oh man, to make that successful says a lot. I always joke about it, but it's actually one of the worst products you could possibly sell. Cause it's like, if you think about a kitchen, there might be 50 some items that have to fit together in order for it to work. So if any of those are out of line, it's not going to fit. They're big and bulky. I mean, Imagine having a thousand pounds show up at your door and you're not, you don't know what to do with it. So like we had to do a lot of education on the front end, let people know what's going to happen when it shows up, like how to document it, how to do all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's not an easy product. So like, crap, if I could do that, I could pretty much sell any products. <laughs> Even traditional advertising didn't work. So like we had to do like really creative stuff just to, to kind of figure out like how to actually get in touch for, or get in front of people. So you started with selling the hardest things first online and then did you move on to, well, let's, let's talk about how you did that. So how you scaled what many would consider one of the hardest things to sell online. You, you did it. And it sounds like at the time you didn't have that much experience behind you other than this other business that didn't work out. You must've done something different than your competitors. And if it was the vendor's cabinets, you were doing something different than him. Is it just the online piece or what were you doing different? So I started out I mean, I didn't know a lot about a cabinet. So I was like, okay, if I don't know about it, the average homeowner doesn't know about it. So as I was learning about it, I was just writing content. I was just, any topic I could think of, I'd do keyword research, figure out which articles or which topic it should be, write an article about it. And then that was my content to give to consumers. Content about cabinets, riveting. So whether it was like install, yeah. Imagine trying to write articles for 13 years about cabinets. I mean, you run out of, you literally run out of things to write about. So I started going to internet marketing conferences and I was like, the way my mind works is like, I can look at any business. I can see what they're doing and figure out a way to apply it to mine, even if it's completely different industry and everything else. So I was 
you know, I'm at these events and I'm listening to all these digital marketers that have you know eBooks and everything else. And I'm like, I think I could take those strategies. I just got to figure out how to apply them over to cabinets or a physical product. That was sort of the big success was just like figuring out how do you leverage social media and all these other assets when you don't have a lot of money, because I didn't have much money. Uh, how do you leverage them to drive eyeballs without having to pay a lot for it? So that was my main goal was like figure out how to use all these other traffic sources without having to spend a lot of money on it. And what's amazing is I would have never made the leap of, and this is for the cabinet industry. Like you would just not think, oh yeah, I'm going to have a really strong social media presence for cabinets. So, I mean, that's a pretty innovative idea and having to write 13 years of content around that. Was it always focused on the product itself or I imagine you had to kind of expand out from that? No. Yeah. We really started getting creative. Like once Pinterest started taking off, one thing I figured out was that it's a very visual platform. So like they would, people would go on there, they'd pin these like really elaborate kitchens or even like bathrooms and everything else like that. So at one point we were sitting down strategizing. I was like, how do we show people how to make them with what we have? and get like really creative because all of our stuff was sort of like generic stock products. You know, they weren't for a million dollar house. They were for that kind of mid-range kind of house that you could save a lot of money. So we started showing like mud rooms and stuff like that, that people were pinning. We'd take the top pictures that were showing on Pinterest and say, here's how you'd recreate that if you were to use our cabinets. That's brilliant. Yeah. And we do all specs and everything. So we'd give them literally a, a checklist of things they would buy that they can then create that, assuming they had some construction skills. So that was one of the creative ways we would take content we already knew was doing well on those platforms and just reinvent it for what we are already selling. That's amazing because, and then you're picking up the SEO. I would imagine that. Okay. Wow. So again, if what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying our products are just kind of products. They weren't necessarily these innovative, like the best cabinets you've ever seen, but it was your marketing plan. That was the huge differentiator. So, I mean, the quality was there. Price point was significantly lower. So what we would also do is like, we would go to the big box stores. We couldn't really say them by name, but we would show one of their cabinet lines and what the total cost would be for the same kitchen versus us. So we had, you know, a spec sheet from them, spec sheet from us. So we used a lot of that sort of long form sales copy stuff to say, save $15,000 versus the big box stores. And then that would kind of be our lead into, you know, the kitchen kitchen design stuff. Yeah. And getting into this digital marketing world, did you have a background in that? Or did you just start, like you said, go to conferences and learned about it and said, I can apply this in my business? I mean, I went to school for marketing, but I can honestly tell you it really didn't apply to anything that's doing. So <laughs> it's totally different probably then as well, because it changes every 12 months. Yeah. So like I had, I guess, a small foundation, but really I just I, I absorb information. So I was literally go to these conferences where I just say, anybody that has information, just give it to me. And then I was also traveling a lot for the sales job I was in. So like I had a lot of downtime at night. So I'd literally just read at night and just figure out like what, what's going on in the internet marketing world. Like how can I apply that? Wow. That's amazing. Um, I feel like a lot of people would not be considering that, especially with those kinds of products. I'm just thinking about a, someone I work with in particular that I'm definitely going to chat with her about this. Hey, are, are you leveraging these tools in your industry as well? Because because she has a physical product, I think some of that is overlooked. Think of digital marketing. And I think a lot of people go to digital products, like you mentioned, eBooks or digital courses, things like that. And no, with physical products, this can also be leveraged. And I love the Pinterest idea because it's taking something that's already working for somebody else and sort of hitching your wagon to that and say, well, people are looking at this. There's eyeballs on this. Why not use all of that traffic to get eyeballs on us too? Yeah. And the other thing that I think kind of stuck out for what we did was so I was writing content. I didn't have a lot of money to kind of push it out or promote it. I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, everybody absorbs information in different ways. Some people like to read it. Some people like to listen to it. 
other people want to watch it. Some like to download it. So we would take an article and we'd basically turn it into like eight different formats. So we'd have like PDF, slideshow, audio, and everything else so that I could be basically anywhere that somebody was looking for information. So whether it was YouTube or Scribed or SlideShare or any of these random platforms, they have an audience. So it's like, if you're not, I, I know nobody in our industry was doing it. So it's like, if, if nobody else is serving it, I could put that out there. And even if I only get five or six eyeballs per week out of it, that's five or six I didn't have to pay for and my competition's not getting. So we used to, yeah, we used to do a lot of that with like content spinning and just repurposing it on different platforms until we just used it, used it out. I would think that cabinets are a one and done kind of sale, but I'm hearing you build an audience, like an actual audience that's going for your content. So we did two things. What I realized, especially with our product, it's a unique product because we could have a, a window, a sales window of two days to like two years. So like we had to catch people in different, different modes of iteration. Some were ready to buy, some were just thinking about it down the road. So it was like, how do we get in front of those people before they make a decision that they want to do it? And we convince them that they want to do it. So some of our audience were built simply for just getting eyeballs. We'd hold them. And then when we'd have a sale or something like that, we'd be able to direct traffic to them. But others, we were trying to educate them so that they would know the difference and would actually recognize our name. So we used to, I probably did too good of a job of it because we started getting calls like our people complaining about our competitors. Like we didn't get this. I was like, well, you're calling the wrong company. So I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I appreciate that we're the Kleenex of the tissue yeah, industry. Right. But... Like, <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. That is a, that's amazing. So brand awareness. So if you knew your sales cycle was anywhere from two days to two years, you must know your avatar really well. And if you do, can you talk to me about how or how you got to know your customer so well or your potential customer? So I, I, yeah, I think that was one of our secret sauces, which it's one of the things I, I help coach people on because it's, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that businesses make is they assume they know who they're talking to when they don't actually. And I could have, I can give you thousands of examples of like where I went to somebody and I started talking to them. They're like, here's our avatar. And when I looked at it, I was like, no, it's not. Like you're, <laughs> no wonder your site's not converting because you're not talking to the right person. So to kind of get in front of those people before they were actually thinking about it, what we did was we, we put them through a couple of different software programs. So you could use like tower data or any of those that kind of append information to an email address. So we'd put them through there and just really understand like, what are their hobbies? What are their habits? Where else are they shopping? What else are they doing? We would break down competitor reviews, see like what they were saying about it. But we basically started creating social media pages around their hobbies. So good example would be like for the kitchen would be like for the female would be usually like cooking and baking. We had a barbecue site. We had a golf site. We had all these different pages on Facebook that were feeding their audiences. They had no idea uh, or feeding their ha their hobbies, they had no idea that it was from a cabinet company because it was unbranded. But we had these audiences that Facebook saw as our audience, not cold traffic. So anytime that we would run ads, we would run them as retargeting ads and everything to these audiences. So we had a isolated audience that we can run retargeting ads to, get it significantly cheaper than cold traffic, and we were talking to them on different platforms. And then we'd try to pull them off of there. So like. For the cooking site, we'd have free cookbooks they can download and all that kind of stuff. Get them on email campaigns, then we can target them on email. So it was just like getting them on as many platforms as we possibly could so that we could talk to them before our competitors could. This is a huge investment up front, though. I mean, you're creating ebooks, cookbooks, all these, you have a community manager, someone always engaging with them in social media. That must have been a big leap of faith to go, I'm going to invest all these things. And then we hope it translates to dollars in the end. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds complex, but we actually started out very simple. So I think the first one was actually the cooking site. So it was like, okay, let's see if we can prove the concept. Could we actually get a bunch of people into an audience talking about cooking recipes and everything else? So the way I look at it was like, okay, if I can set aside 500 bucks, I can test anything on 
any of these platforms, figure out whether it's worth it or not. Am I getting any traction? If I do, then I can invest more into it. So initially we didn't have cookbooks. We were just, we we're sharing recipes, doing all that kind of stuff from other sites. And then I was like, wait a minute, why don't we just take the top recipes that are getting likes and shares all the time, put them into a free download and then just give it to them. So we kind of did it in stages. It wasn't like we mapped this whole thing out initially, but after that, then we moved to the next topic, next topic, next topic. And that, at some point, I think we had somewhere near like two and a half million followers on all these different pages that we can then target with whatever we want. That's amazing. So I want to ask you about the cost per acquisition that you said you got down. Before I ask that question, before we go off in, in that direction. So you said you sit down with companies in the past. So you said, I'd sit down with companies, their site wasn't converting, they would describe who their avatar was, and you'd know that that's not the case. If we have a business owner that's listening right now, and they've got a site that's not converting, how do they know if their avatar is wrong? I would say, so there's a couple of ways you could do it. One is kind of put them through one of those appendage services. So it doesn't even cost you anything to kind of get like a general idea of who they are. The other thing would just be surveys, like figure out, send out surveys, do all that kind of stuff. You know, you can do it with Facebook lookalike audiences, kind of see if the demographics are matching up. One really good example that comes to mind is I, this company flew in to, to meet me in Utah and they capped out at like, let's say 10 million in sales and they couldn't figure out why they weren't getting any bigger. So we sit down and we start talking to him. He's like, oh yeah, my audience is gamer. Cause they do this like special chair, like orthopedic chair. He's like, they're gamers. They're in their thirties and everything else like that. So we put them through the cycle of like, you're targeting the wrong person. That's why I was like, your audience is actually like a 50 year old human resource manager who's buying these things for his staff so that they can get longevity. So we literally changed nothing on the site other than the imagery. Cause he had like young kids on the site and all this stuff changed it to professionals and the damn thing like doubled in revenue within like six months because literally the imagery was throwing off the conversion rate. So it's like those little tweaks, just minor tweaks can change everything. So, and your, your avatar sometimes changes over time, depending on what platforms you're targeting. Like if you're suddenly running ads on TikTok or Instagram, your audience might skew a little bit younger than it would on Facebook. So we just keep doing this like every six months, just kind of do a reiteration of the avatar, just make sure that we're still talking to the same people. Yeah. And just to clarify, we've talked about avatars many times on Pivot Me, but let's just clarify real quick. So actually, let's hear it in your words. Gary, describe to us what an avatar is to the business owners and why it's so important that they know exactly who that is. Yeah. To me, the, the avatar is the targeted person that, that that's actually buying your product. And to give you an, a, a good example, so for the cabinet company, we actually had multiple avatars, which is what our competition didn't figure out till years later. You know, when you think about it, we had construction professionals, we had real estate professionals, we had flippers, and we had homeowners. Every one of them buys for a very different reason. And they have very different language that they use. Like if I'm talking to a contractor, I'm probably not going to talk in the same language that I would to a homeowner simply because they're more educated. So what we started doing was creating sales funnels based off of those avatars and the words that the verbiage that they would use. That was the game changer in terms of conversion rates and everything, because we were no longer talking to a, a homeowner about how they fit in there. It was literally the wife's looking for the aesthetics, the husband's looking, kicking the tires, making sure the quality is good. When you change the verbiage on that to talk to those people, completely different conversation. So that, that to me, avatar is probably the, the biggest thing, especially when you have traffic already. If you have enough information, you can figure out who that is and then just change your sales copy to match it. Yeah. The sales copy, the imagery, like you were saying, if, if I'm a 50-year-old HR manager and I log on to a site and I see a gamer sitting there, I go, oh, this isn't for me. But if I log on and see someone that looks like me, talks like me, the sales language sounds like the, as the phrase goes, the conversation that's already going on inside your head, 
if they're talking in that same language, then I go, oh, this is for me. I recognize this as self. I recognize that this is going to be my solution, which is so important. And a lot of times we do have more than one avatar. So you might have primary, secondary, and then maybe a much lesser tertiary, but you have to speak to them differently and you have to show them different imagery. And also the suite of products you might show them can change depending on what your products are. I was going to say another really quick example would be like, we started buying up pet brands in the last two years. What we figured out is there's two different avatars. There's somebody that is looking for a solution for a problem that their dog already has. And then there's people that are healthy that are looking to prevent those things. So those are two completely different conversations too. So if your sales copy doesn't match that, somebody that's you know into health and is coming there, they're not looking for that solution to that problem. And you can have a totally different conversation with them than you would somebody that's just literally found out that you know dog has hip problems and they need to find a solution. Yeah. Only 3% of speakers, podcasters, and authors make enough money to do it as a full-time career. 3%. Man, that's bad. I came from the big business world, and if I wanted to scale my speaking career and release courses, I knew I needed more than just case studies and metrics. I actually needed a personal brand. Brand Builders Group is a personal brand strategy firm for thought leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs, and they work with some of the biggest names. They help clarify your message, expand reach, and increase revenue while monetizing your personal brand. I still do their monthly consulting package, but I've also done their workshops, webinars. They're all great. Don't be part of the 97% who can't afford to do the work they love full-time. Connect with the same team I hired to help me. Check them out at pivot-me.com backslash partners and get on their schedule for a free call. For those who are listening right now, if you think your website is just a brochure, it's not. Your website is a salesperson working for you 24-7. You have to have this kind of language on there, the sales copy, the imagery, it needs to be on there to take the customer through a journey that you want them to go on. It's not just a static brochure that it's like, oh, I run a business and I stand up the sales page and that's that. You're you're taking them through a journey, which is why it's so important to separate between the person that has a healthy dog that wants to make sure they stay healthy versus the one that's like, is Fido having a hard time? You want to make sure that his golden years are as golden as possible? You're going to speak to them differently. And that's that's important for your conversions. And again, it's not just a brochure. It's an actual, effectively a salesperson that's always up 24-7. And the interesting thing is not only does it change your conversion rates, but it also then optimizes for the advertising platform. So if it converts better, cost per acquisition drops, it's just this cyclical thing. So that the more you can kind of modify that, even like micro changes are going to have a massive impact on your cost per acquisition, your conversion rates and everything else that goes along with it. Yeah. So that's, that's a great segue to the next question, which is, so I read that your cost per acquisition used to be $120 in this industry. And then it dropped to, was it, was it 15? It was in like the twenties when okay. I ended up selling it. Yeah. Pretty that, substantial. So how did you do that? So that was through sort of those social media uh, pages that we created. So like, as I said, we had Facebook saw that as a, an interior audience, not a cold audience. So they, they already had some connection to us. Our ad accounts were already uh, connected to them. So when we ran ads to them, we were getting them at almost like retargeting prices instead of cold traffic prices. So it was a really easy way for us to drop our cost per acquisition without doing a whole lot of work on the front end other than they build those pages. Gotcha. And again, explain cost per acquisition. So if someone's not running ads right now, explain what that is and why it's important. Yeah. I mean, cost per acquisition is what is the total cost to acquire that customer based off of ad spend? So every industry is going to be different. 
even within the pet industry right now, it's completely different based off different platforms. So when we consider cost for acquisition, we're looking at what is our lifetime value versus what can we pay for a customer right now? Obviously, the larger the lifetime value, the higher order or higher total spend they're going to have, you can spend more for them. I think, I mean, there's been a dynamic shift in that. But I, when we first got started, everybody was trying to make money off the first order. And it was like, okay, as long as we can prove that we can spend more than that, we're going to beat everybody anyway. So we focused on lifetime value and just tried to create as much value on the back end as we possibly could so that we could spend more on the front end. Yeah. What irony is, if you're willing to spend more, you probably end up spending less because they give you higher quality traffic. It converts better. It drives down your cost per acquisition. It's a weird kind of shift in mentality, but the more you're willing to spend, the less it's probably going to cost you. Yeah. You got to have the long, the long vision though, for, to see that. Otherwise you're like just saying the immediate dollar signs and you're like, no, nah, it doesn't make sense. But if you've got the vision, you'll see it makes sense. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So when I look at, we talked about the cabinet making business, you've, you've scaled several businesses. You're talking about pet businesses now. One of the things that I, I've heard you talk about is we as entrepreneurs have the shiny new object syndrome, right? So something we go, oh, this is an amazing idea. Let's do this. This is an amazing idea for a product or a business. And we go out there and we throw the resources and the mental real estate towards it. And sometimes that can get us in trouble. I know uh, Keith Cunningham says the phrase I love, which is businesses die from indigestion more than starvation. Like we're just trying to do too much. We're trying to take in too much. So I, I hear you've got a model on how to kind of dial in this idea iteration, how to assign a value. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So it, it not only applies to like your ideas, but uh, for us, we used it internally for employees because we used to do weekly meetings. And it was like, hey, anybody have any cool ideas or anything that we can do to implement for the company? It's kind of hard to just tell somebody, no, your idea stinks, even if it, and it may not even stink. It may not just be that there's like other things that are more higher priority. So we came up with like a framework. It was basically, it was five columns. You know, we put the idea on the board. It would be a value of one to 10. How many resources do we have internally? How many resources or how much resources would we have to go out and get? What is the realistic time frame for completion? How much is this going to cost? Rough estimate. And then how much revenue would it bring in? And based off of those columns, some of them are start with one versus 10. Some start with 10 versus one. But you basically figure out a score. So at the end, you tally that up. And then we just put them in priority order. So if somebody, if one had you know, a score of 85, that would outrank something that's 70. And for our employees, it, rather than me shooting them down or just saying no, it was a good visual for them to be like, oh, okay, I understand. My idea is still there. It just doesn't bring as much value to the company as this idea does. And that kind of dynamically shifts. So if somebody comes up with a new idea and suddenly that one outranks something else, then we would go to implement that. So it's kind of like a sliding scale that would keep changing, but we do that every week. And I just started implementing that for myself too. Cause it's like every day, you know, you wake up, you're like, Ooh, this would be a great idea. And then when you, you're like, man, that's, that's horrible. Like, what? <laughs> I think that Why was good. I think of that? <laughs> Why did I email my team about that? Man, that was a bad idea. So do you keep all these on, like, is there a parking lot where they all live that you you keep the idea? So they get to see that their, their idea isn't dead. It's just in the not now list. Yeah. So we would in our office at that time, we had a big whiteboard and we would just have them always sitting up there as we'd complete one, cross it off, shift them around in a little bit. Then we moved to Google Docs so that everybody had access to it. But yeah, it's just, a, it's a good visual, give everybody access to it. And then that way they know like their idea didn't suck or it's not dead. It just wasn't as good as something else that was recommended. Yeah. Uh, so Gary, this is so good. I want to make sure that we get it. So can you run us through what those were again? I, I know there was the revenue that is coming from a couple of them. So list them out for us again. Internal resources. So if you can complete everything with the staff you had, uh, scale one to 10, that would give you a 10. External resources you'd have to go get 
if you had to go get a lot of resources, that would be a lower score. So maybe like a one or two. Time to complete. So is this like something that could be done immediately or is this something that's going to take two months to you know, redo the website and all that kind of stuff? The less time it takes, the higher the score it gets. Cost, do we have to spend, you know, is it a new, like, are we doing direct mail, which is going to cost us $40,000, $50,000 to set up? Or is this something that our IT guy can change in two seconds and it won't cost us anything? And then rough ballpark of what do you think the ROI is on that? Is it, you know, is this a $10,000 project? Is it a $100,000 project? What are we realistically going to get back from that? And again, some of these are, you know, they're just guesses, but those five, if you can figure out those five and just assign a value to it, that gives you a pretty good ball estimate of you know how much value that's going to bring to the company. I love I love this idea. I think this is honestly, Gary. I think this is genius because it it puts you know it quantifies the value. It also, like you said, it it makes it easier when you're having the conversation with the employee when you're like, yeah, we tried that 24 months ago. It was a freaking failure. It's easier to navigate that conversation. It's a way that you encourage. You know, I love when you start your meetings and you say, "Who's got some great ideas?" It encourages people's creativity and their innovation to come forth, and people, you know, we want them to know that their ideas are valued. But it also quantifies quantifies this, this idea. It also takes the emotion out of it. I was just about to say that. Yeah. Like people get attached to their idea. Like this is the greatest thing in the world. This is my baby. Yeah. Yeah. When when you take the emotion out of it and you actually assign a value to it, it's kind of hard to dispute that that one has a higher score than this one. Like, yeah. (laughs) It takes the, it takes the emotion out of it too, but it probably gives you some insight into how many times you've brought in your baby forth. Like if you're like, Oh, there's that list. I got six ideas up on there and they don't have the shine that they used to. It also, again, gives you perspective of like, eh, okay, it's good we didn't rally the troops already on that idea. I think so. If you're listening right now, make sure you get that list. We're going to put it in the show notes as well. And we'll give contact information for Gary as well so you can reach out to him. But this is amazing. We should all be using this format because it really is a great way to measure a new idea because they come forth a lot. And some of them are amazing, but it's a great way so we don't uh, throw resources at the wrong ideas because we love our new ideas, right? We got to get does. pulled back. Right? We're getting pulled back. We're like, this is the best idea ever. Well, this is the second one you had this week. So hold on a second. Okay. This is incredibly valuable. Gary, one of the things when, when I look back at the things that you've done, again, had a lot of success. Talk to us about some of your success practices. What are you doing? Because you've done it in multiple industries, lots of different kinds of businesses. Obviously there's a lot of things you're doing, right? What are you doing as far as either in the business or even personal practices? They could be morning routines or goal setting. What are you, what's some of your success practices? Yeah. So I'll I'll talk about both personal I definitely didn't have good practices when I ran that business. I was working 60, 70 hours a week, eating like crap, all that stuff. After that, I realized, I mean, I was played college basketball. So I was always an athlete. I was like, I got to get back in shape. So part of my routine now is I figured out that I work best early in the morning and then mid afternoon. So what I'll do is I'll get up early, do a couple hours of work. And then I have a workout routine uh, where I train, sauna, cold plunge, all that kind of stuff to kind of get my body back in shape. And then I can jump back into work with a lot of, a lot more energy. So that's what works best for me. I don't necessarily think that everybody does that. Sure. But are you a, are you a Wim Hof fan? I've done it. I've done it before. It's not really my cup of tea. I yeah. just, I just sit in there and scream like a little kid for a couple of minutes and then just get out. <laughs> not everybody's into the cold plunge. I'm like, wait a second. There's gotta be a story there, Gary. No, I, I just, I realized that like I, you can optimize your body in a lot of different ways. So I, you know, Paul Dave Asprey and Ben Greenfield, a bunch of these other guys that are biohacking. So I'm like, okay, I'm not getting any younger. I need to start figuring out how to sure. keep, my, keep my body in better shape. In terms of in the business, what I 
realized probably three years before I sold the business was that I was the biggest bottleneck as most business owners figure out. Like we're not growing because I keep stopping everything that's going to happen. So for myself, what I started doing was what I, you could refer to as like down tasking or downsourcing, whatever. But uh, I had a business coach that, that kind of walked me through this and he was like, okay, write down everything that you do in a day, literally everything, whether it's answer the phone, go to the bank, whatever, write it all down and give it a value for how much does that bring to the business? Or there's two ways you can do it. How much money does it bring to the business or how much would it cost you to hire somebody else to do it? So you look at like rudimentary things like, you know, running to the bank or whatever, a VA or somebody could do that. So like, why would I be doing that as the owner of the company? doesn't make a lot of sense. Then you get like more intermediate tasks that might require some creativity or decision-making. That's more of like a managerial level and then, or customer service level or something like that. And then you move into sort of the management level, like something that might require, you know, it might impact the business or have something to do with that. So we started assigning everything from like $10, $100, $1,000. When I started realizing how much of my day was spent on these stupid tasks that like weren't bringing any money, I was like, holy crap, like, this is this is ridiculous. So I started downsourcing that. So at the end, we had all of our employees were, I gave them permission every day to like, write down everything that they wanted, that, that they did. And anything that was below their pay grade, let's downsource it, push it down to the next person. So I ended up actually buying a virtual assistant company because of this, because we started downsourcing so many different tasks. But what it is, what what it does is it frees up probably 80% of your day to then focus on higher value stuff. And it also got the employees in the mindset of, okay, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be pushing that down to somebody else because I can create more value. So just by like, again, looking at like what you're doing on a daily basis and signing value to it, it's kind of hard to dispute that like, if you're doing a $10 task that can be outsourced, why would you be doing that when you're getting paid, you know, X number of dollars more than that? So that was really good. And it allowed me to free up my time to focus on strategy and company growth. And then that's when we really started to explode. You know, and that's such, such a great point, Gary, uh, two, two points on that. So one is business owners are almost always the biggest bottleneck in the business. And we make the mistake, Gary and I were talking about this before, we make the mistake of attributing the success we have now to the wrong practices. We go, well, no, no, I've always kept my eye on the bookkeeping. And so that's how I got to 20 million a year. Well, maybe you got to 20 million a year, despite the fact that you had your fingers in all the pies. So we often attribute how we got that success to the wrong thing. And a lot of time it's limiting practices. The other point I'll make is that when, when talking about, when talking about delegation, when talking about what to outsource, one of the phrases I, I really, really encourage people to, to use is instead of ask the question, can I do this? Because you say, well, of course I can run to the bank. I mean, it's no big deal. It's on my way home, da, 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 right? All the ways we justify. Do not ask the question, can I do this? We are resourceful people. We can do just about anything. Ask the question, should I do this? Should this be me? Should this really be me? In fact, I have people ask it twice. Does this need to be me? Okay, does this really need to be me? Because when we ask, can I, the answer is almost always yes, but the company can't grow bigger than the owner. So if our, the owner's mindset is small, the business will stay small. We'll keep bumping up against our own limitations. I'd say the other thing that I commonly hear is, well, I, I can't find anybody that can do it as well as I can. And we, yes, because it's your business, you have more skin in the game. No one's ever going to do it as well as you. But if you can find somebody that can do it 70%, 75%, and that frees you up to do 
other things like that's, yeah, that's the, the key aspect of it. And it could be diminishing returns, right? So like sometimes I don't do design. I, whenever I try to get involved in design, I get frustrated, but I have all sorts of opinions on design. And so there'll be a doc, there was a proposal that came over yesterday and I was like, I don't like these design elements and this needs to be moved around here, here, and here. It's because my EA is off this week moving. If she was here, she would have said, April, this is good enough. She does the design. She oversees it. She would have said, it's fine. Let let our designer release it. It's great. But then I get involved and I'm like, well, this could be a little bit better. Well, there's diminishing returns. Yes. Sometimes you just got to celebrate the the B plus. It doesn't need to be the A plus. Us business owners, because we're like, this is our business. This is our baby. This is our image. This is our legacy. We want to make things better than they need to be too. I'm a firm believer to fail fast. I'd rather put something out, have it fail really quick, make modifications and go versus sit there and kind of keep tweaking, tweaking, tweaking until you never actually put it out there. And then when you do, it's an epic failure. So. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so what would you say to the business owner that's listening to it that says, I want to delegate these, but people can't do it as well as I am. Or I've tried to delegate in the past, but it got messed up. What would you say to them? I would probably modify your hiring practice. That was one of my mistakes in the beginning was I was just hiring the wrong people. I didn't know how to hire and I never really outsourced it, the hiring process. Since then, I've gotten a lot smarter at it. And now I just realized I just need to know enough to be dangerous and know whether they're, whether they're, they're valid in what they're doing. I don't need to know everything about it. So like, yes, could I run Facebook ads? I absolutely could. Is it the best use of my time? No. But if I'm going to hire somebody, I actually, I know enough of the questions to ask to see if they're valid. So I my whole philosophy now is learn enough to be dangerous, but pass it on to somebody else that's an expert. Absolutely. And have a good system or process that you're not attached to the person, you're attached to the process. So for some reason, if that person does go away, then you step someone else in and they can take over that process. That's actually a good point because I think that's one of the hiring mistakes that people make is they don't really define what the job is. It's just like they hire somebody and they're like, okay, you do do all this. Do it all the time. And they're like, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Like that, like you don't have like a an actual SOP or anything that they could follow so that they can actually succeed. And then you're like, well, why'd you lose that? Why'd you fail on that? Cause they didn't know what they're doing. They're just kind of making it up as they went along. Yes. We were, uh, we were just talking about this last week and when, when delegation fails, it's often the delegator. That's the problem. It's, we always think it's the dele delegator delegate I'm not sure how that works, but we're going to go with it. We always think it's like, oh, they didn't do it right. Oh, they didn't deliver on expectations. You didn't communicate the expectations. You did not define what success looked like. It's amazing how many small business owners will say they need to bring someone on. And how do they describe that someone? Oh, I need a jack of all trades, right? How many times have you heard this? As a business advisor, I'm always, I I just need a jack of all trades. Oh. Or they're, they're looking for the unicorn. Right. Well, Someone like, who's why not super just passionate. hire three or four people that can actually do all that and then actually specialize in it instead of just giving everybody a generic job? <laughs> if you're if you're looking for the jack of all trades, it's because you have, you have not clearly defined what you need in that role. Do the work up front. Do make it easier on them, not only on yourself and the business, but make it easier on the person that you're about to bring in that's like, I don't know what to do. They didn't tell me, they just hired me. And even if you can't articulate it which, you know, I get it. Some people aren't really good at like writing down every step of the process. Just do Loom or Zoom video, do any kind of video recording of your process as you're walking through it. And then you don't actually have to write it down. Like you could really just hand them the video of here's what I did on this page of this site. And this is what you do. Yes. That's such, Gary, that's such a good point because if you are a smaller business owner and you are scaling and you don't, you go, I don't have time to sit down and write SOPs. First businesses need SOPs. I hear you. You're too busy for SOPs. 
business. That's not just a hundred million plus business practice. We should have SOPs. However, I get that you're super busy. If that's the case, like you said, do a loom video, do a zoom video, do a screen share, walk that through the process and then task your employee with writing the SOP that, that like, all right, this is how we upload the podcast and, and this is the process. And here was the password I just wrote in and then task them with doing SOP. There's no shame in having the employee write the SOP for their role as they go. Gary, do you still own the VA service company? Because I feel like a lot of our listeners could benefit from that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I do. It's called sidekicks.co. Sidekicks.co. Okay. We'll add that to the show notes. That's incredibly valuable because that's a question we get asked quite a bit. I'm going to read a note that I've got here in front of me. Number one, it says, I took control of my life and my goals and made them happen. Number two is focus. I didn't have a clue what focus was. Number three says, I'm really thriving with weekly accountability and a team to help. These are just some of the feedback we've received from our weekly mastermind calls. We've been running them for years. They have been so powerful, so impactful, and they've all been full, but we finally opened a new time slot with live coaching with me and eight other awesome people once a week, they will get to know you. I will get to know you and we will all be pooling for your success. Hop over to pivot-me.com backslash mastermind. Answer those four questions and get on a call with me. Come on over. Your team is waiting for you. Let's do this together. So Gary, when I look at your past, there's been some, some shifts, right? There's some pivots. So we talk a lot about sort of a pivot point in your life, your business, where everything changed. Sometimes it's one that's kind of forced upon us, like a car accident or a fire or a business gets sold out from underneath us, something like that. And some of them are decisions we've made the day that we say, that's it. I've had enough. I'm changing or I'm going in a different direction. When is a time in your past where you had a pivot like that? Oh man, there's been a ton of them. <laughs> I mean, the biggest was the first business failing up until that point, you know, I was a good student athlete, hadn't really had any major failures. And that was like a, just a wake up call. I was like, holy crap. But it also reinforced in my head that I never, I, I'm not a good employee. I, I can't work for somebody. I need to be doing something on my own, no matter what it is. I think that was probably the biggest shift, but it also showed me what, what I would call rock bottom for me. So now that I know what that is, I have maybe overconfidence, but I'm, I'm not really fearful of losing everything. It's like, okay, I've already been down there. No matter what I do, I've got everything up here that I can start another company. So even it, it's allowed me to take probably a little more risk than most people would simply because I know that even if this fails today, I can just start another one tomorrow and I can just move on with the marketing knowledge that I already have and just implement something else. So that was, that was probably one of the biggest shifts. Yeah. Yeah. Gary. So let me ask you this, just I'm, I'm thinking this through, how do you check your ego? How do you go, well, if it fails, it's fine. Because that's one of the hardest pieces that I think is to manage is, well, you were known for this business and now you pivot to this other business or this business goes under. Is it just, that's not a problem for me? Or is there something that you do to check your ego and go, that didn't work. That's okay. I'm going to do something else. My, me personally, I'm usually not associated with the business itself. Like I'm not the face of it. I become known for, you know, I became known for that from you know, the background, but like I don't attach myself to the business. So even if I, I've had in the last, I don't know what four years I've had probably two or three that failed. I was, I didn't put any emotion to it. It was a business decision. I put some, you know, I tried, it failed, moved on. I don't know if there's a process that I came up with for that or necessarily. It was just, that's just the way I operate. It's like, okay, let me try it. I could test it for X number of dollars. If it fails, I didn't lose everything. 
but at the same time, I learned something from it. And as long as you keep learning from those mistakes, I mean, failure is the easiest lesson in life. Like when I talk to people, I don't, I don't really care what their success stories were. I want to hear how do they fail and what do they do to fix it? Because I'm going to learn from that more than I would from somebody that's running Facebook ads and suddenly scaled to 20 million, 30 million, whatever. What's interesting is you just said you back the emotion out of it. And I'm thinking about your model for your idea iteration. You also back the emotion out of that. Noticing a theme here of like, no, I'm just, I'm able to pull the emotion out so that I can make the logical decision and not the emotional decision. Well, yeah. Cause I think a lot of people get caught up in like sunken costs. I had a project that I was working on. It was a passion project. I probably dumped way more money than I should have into it about two years ago. And I just didn't consider it a sunken cost. And then I stepped back. I'm like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Like, it doesn't matter if I throw another eight figures at this thing, it's never going to be what I want it to be. So like, I just got to cut my losses and move on. I think a lot of people have a hard time doing that because it becomes their baby. And they're like, they'll either choke it to death or they'll drown it to death with whatever, but like, they'll just keep going because they're afraid to say that they failed. Failure is the best lesson in life, uh, at least in my opinion. Like, Yeah. Your business is not your baby. That was a theme in a, a recent interview that we did with M&A experts. She kept saying, no, your, your babies are your babies. Business is not your baby. And when you think about it like that, it does not serve you. And I think a lot of business owners do think about it like that. Have you always had that approach or do you just kind of know, I'm in love with business. I'm not in love with the business. Well, for me, it was like the marketing. I, anything I get into, how do I talk to that customer? Like, I'm fascinated by that, like the psychology side of it. And like, just how do I reach them? Where do I reach them? And how do I reach them at, a, at the point where they're ready to buy? So even, you know, when I scaled the business and I was brought in, when I, you know, kind of that down tasking, I realized my strength is not managing people. It's not really running a business. It's driving eyeballs and marketing. So as long as I can focus on that, I'm good. So I almost consider myself a consultant for the businesses that I own now. I don't call myself the owner. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to consult whenever you guys need help, let me know. But that way I'm backed out of it and I can see it purely from the number standpoint, instead of being like, no, this is my baby. And like, I got to get it to whatever. That makes complete sense. And it makes sense how then the emotion isn't attached to it. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit. So one of the things we talked about before we went on is one of the things we talked about a lot on Pivot Me is how business owners sabotage. Either personally, they sabotage their business. We've talked about a few things, which is they've got their fingers in all the pies, right? They're doing tasks that are way below their pay grade. They're not leaning into their genius. All these ways that business owners can sabotage. What are some of the ways that either you or the businesses that you've worked with have sabotage and what can people do about it? Yeah. So I almost, the company I sold, I almost sold it for five times less than what I did, what I got. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. I think one of the ways that they sabotage is they, they get, you know, at that time, oh, I, for me, I was burnout, just had a major issue with theft. And I was just like, what am I doing? Like, this is not the type of business I want. I'm like, I'm just getting, I'm out. Like, I just want out. So I put it on the market and I got an offer and I wasn't super happy with it, but I was like, you know what? I don't care. I just, I just want out. And then luckily one of my friends was smart enough to say, you're stupid for doing that. Like, hold on, think about it, take the emotion out of it and like, just step back and just look at it from a clear standpoint. But I, I would imagine that's probably one of the biggest ones. Like they, just, they either get burnout or they, like we talked about before, they don't think they can hand anything off to anybody else. So the employees don't feel like they have any, any input or any control. So the company just kind of flounders or, or does whatever. And I'd say the, the, the big one that I run into now when I do any coaching is everybody's like either one platform uh, dedicated or maybe two. And they don't mitigate the risk by diversifying traffic flow. 
which is one of the biggest ones. Like a change of TOS on Amazon, if you're only on Amazon, your business can be gone tomorrow. If you're on Amazon, Facebook, Shopify, all these other platforms, yeah, it's going to hurt your company, but it won't destroy it. So I think that's, that, I mean, that's, those are probably the three that I can think of right off the top of my head that like way, ways that people really sabotage companies. Yeah. One of the things we were talking about in that M&A talk was that a lot of people try to sell their business when they're burnt out or some catastrophic event happens, there's a health issue or a loss of a partner, things like that. But a lot of times it was during burnout. And that is not the time when we make the best decisions for our future. <laughs> when we're burned out. So I have one more question, but before I do that, Gary, where can people connect with you? I mean, easiest is on my website. I just do, I basically do brain dumps on there. I try to do it every week, but it's just garyneelan.com. It's like anything that we, so we, I, I try to use one of the reasons I got back into e-commerce was because I was like, okay, if I'm going to be coaching, I need to have a business that I could base it off of. Otherwise I'm just one of those guys that have you know retired 20 years ago and are still talking about the same stuff. So that, a lot of what I talk about is like what things that we're actually implementing in the, the pet businesses and then, you know, convey it over to anybody that wants to read it. So I'd say that's probably the easiest way. So really relevant. Okay, perfect. So for the social platform, is there a place where you're most active social? Facebook and Instagram. It's kind of a mix. I just, I just kind of hop around back and forth. Anytime I have an idea, just toss it out there. And <laughs> you're like, again, I diversified my exposure. Like I, I'm, I'm on all of them. Okay. We'll put it in uh, show notes as well. So the last question is, if you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? So I actually started doing, and I didn't, I'm not telling the world, but I started going into high schools and speaking to high school kids, especially in like lower income areas, explaining what entrepreneurship is. Because I, the way I, I blew up, grew up in a blue collar family. So it was like, I didn't have any examples of entrepreneurship or anybody that I could reference. And it's amazing when I started going into these schools, I started when I was in Philadelphia, I started going to like Philly schools and moved up to New York and everywhere else. Some of these schools don't even know that they can like, that they could be their own business owner. It's like, and it's such a shame. Like that is when you have the most creativity, like come up with an idea. Just, so just talking to these kids and just saying, Hey, even if you see a product, you you love, and there's something you want to change about it. That's the way that you can start a company. Like just look at everything you do on a daily basis and just see, could you improve that? How could you do it? And that's a company. And when you see somebody's eyes light up, they're like, holy cow, like I can own my own business. Like that to me is awesome. So that's kind of what I've been doing is just trying to educate younger children on like, you can have your own business. Like you don't have to do the go to college. You could, if you want, but like, go to college, go work for somebody, work a nine to five. Like that doesn't have to be the standard just because either your parents were like that or you don't have any other examples. So that would be my big one, I think. That's a, that's a great answer. Gary, was there someone who was that for you? Was there, I mean, you said you grew up in a blue collar family. Where did this concept of entrepreneurism come from? I have no idea. <laughs> I, saw I actually it in had the this movie. <laughs> I, I had this conversation with my sister and brother because they both work, you know, regular jobs. I was like, why, how did I end up like, like, I don't, I don't understand it. I just, I think I was willing to take more risks. I just, I don't know. My mentality was just like, I don't want to work for anybody. Like I just, I'm not, I'm not good at following somebody else's direction. It was incorrigible. So. <laughs> and that's how I got into entrepreneurism. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Thank you for this information. The insight was fantastic. We'll share all the information on our website and in our social media and on our show notes. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. All right, let's recap on the system to evaluate a new idea. Here was that list again. So the first one was internal resources needed, scale of one to 10. External resources needed, one to 10. Time to complete, obviously these are estimations, one to 10, the cost, one to 10. 
revenue expected. Man, this framework is just brilliant. And it doesn't just work for a business owner evaluating a new idea or product. This is pretty much any endeavor in our life. We should do some version of this model. It's a great way to quantify a new idea and quickly determine its viability. And even better, we keep all those ideas in a parking lot, this running list so you can compare those ideas at a later date. The best ones rise to the top and we back the emotion out of it. And we can be very emotional about our new ideas, our new babies. Also, I love when Gary says that business owners are the biggest bottlenecks of the business. And often it's the aversion to delegating. Let me ask you, how many wildly successful experts have we had here on Pivot Me? And they said the same thing. We're the biggest hurdle. And remember, if you're struggling with delegating, never ask the question, can I do this? The answer will almost always be yes. Instead, ask, should I do this? Is this really what I should be spending my time on? Assign a value, a dollar amount to your time and be aware if you're spending your time on something worth less than that, you are robbing genius from the company. In closing, use Gary's framework for vetting a new idea. Take time to know your avatar well and speak their language. Don't be like some of those clients Gary had sat down and they said, oh yeah, our avatar is this person over here. And he's like, nope, nope, it's not. So it matters to speak their language. It matters to have the imagery that represents them well. Go connect with Gary at garynealan.com. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Thanks for joining us this week and we'll talk to you next Thursday. Take care. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.